Today's sermon is based off the entire book of Ruth, though we will be reading just two passages from Ruth chapter 1 and chapter 4. Chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept out loud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. Today I'm, I'm taking the liberty uh, to preach uh, from the book of Ruth. So we just ended a series on the life of Moses, and I know that the Women's Fellowship had uh, just recently completed their first season together on their study on the book of Ruth, and so it's a fascinating text. It's a great text, and it's great before we begin our next series And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide some features on the narrative of the book of Ruth. I'm going to use this passage that we just read as a backdrop. And then I'm going to give us three quick teachings that we can draw from the narrative. So background features and then three quick teachings. First, we're going to go into the narrative itself, the background, the story. It begins with the emptiness of Naomi. Naomi was an Israelite, an immigrant to Moab, what was really an enemy neighboring country. And she went there with her husband during famine And there she raised two sons who eventually married Moabite women. But then disaster strikes. Disaster struck and not only does she lose her husband, but she loses both of her sons. She loses both of her sons. And that means that socially and economically, Naomi is absolutely broken. Because widows were probably the most socially and economically vulnerable in those days because within the social and, and, uh, and leadership and economic framework of the Israelites' ancient times, 
The structure of the family was the most valued. It determined your social currency. But Naomi's older. She's a lot older. And her sons were grown up. And so she's got no parents. She's got no prospects in building a new family. And she's got no adult children to support her. So she is just absolutely empty, just completely broken in her life. Now think about this before you judge her culture. Every culture has a way of defining who their nobodies are. I know we like to say, well, you know, our, our culture today, we're beyond all that. We have a lot of social justice. Listen, it's easy to look at those days and say, how could they treat Naomi like that, like an outcast like that? And then we look in the mirror and we get embarrassed by our weight. And uh, we, we get embarrassed by what we do. We're embarrassed by our salaries. Naomi actually never cared for those things. You know, in our day, we can have a large family, but if you don't have individual uh, accomplishments, you feel like a nobody. In those days, it was the exact reverse. You could be individually accomplished, and that didn't matter. The question in life was, do I have a family? Do I have a legacy? And so Naomi, she goes back to Israel to live this dead-end life. And there's this one passage where there's this tremendously sad play on her name. She gets back to Bethlehem, and the people ask, is this Naomi? Naomi, the word Naomi means sweet. Is this Naomi? And she says, call me Mara. Call me Mara because it's a play on her name because Mara means bitter. And what she's saying is, uh, in other words, I went away sweet. I went away Naomi, but I've come back bitter. I've come back sour. So in this passage, Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law, go back home. You're younger You've got prospects. Stay amongst your race. Have a chance at building another family. Let let it go well with you. Because she knows that if they actually follow her, even worse things can possibly happen to them. You know, because they're widows. Yes, they're widows, and that's bad. But uh, on top of that, they're foreigners from a neighboring enemy country. And as a result, you know, not only are they going to be socially marginalized, but they could suffer racial animosity They could actually be hurt or possibly even murdered. They could be objects of violence every day. So Naomi says, go back. I want you to go back to your land. But in light of that, what does Ruth say? She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. In other words, what she's really saying is, I'm going to bind myself to you in such a way that whatever happens to you, happens to me. I'm going to be faithful and bind myself to you in such a way that anything that you experience, anything that you endure, I will endure. Now, every act of immigration is drastic. Every act of immigration is drastic. Immigrants tend to, they have to leave behind what's absolutely familiar to them, always for a better life. They're doing that because for the prospects of a better life, they leave. But Ruth, look at Ruth. She leaves knowing that it's going to be a worse life for her. That's what's amazing. That's what's amazing. You see that in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, what is she doing? She's gleaning through these fields in Israel. She's gleaning the fields. Really what she's doing is she's picking up, as the harvesters are, are working their harvest, she's kind of trailing behind and picking up the leftover grain because she's hungry to feed her family. She's working out there, uh, to work, working the grain to feed her family. And Boaz, she happens upon Boaz's fields. And Boaz is this gentleman, he hears who she was 
and how, she, how she's supporting her mother-in-law. And he's amazed by that. He's amazed by what she would be willing to do for the, her Israelite mother-in-law. And so uh, she, he's amazed, and he basically sets up provision so that she's, not untu- she's untouched, she's not harmed. Meanwhile, Ruth is amazed by that kindness. He shows tremendous kindness to Ruth's mother, mother-in-law, and she's amazed by that, by that kindness. They could have easily been hurt by, their, by his workers. They could have been cast out by his workers. Naomi realizes that Boaz is one of the few people that could be called the kinsman redeemer. Now, what's that? This is the key of the whole text. The kinsman redeemer. In Israelite law, a kinsman redeemer had the right to buy back the ancestral land to a family that had lost that land. When the Israelites came into the land, they really literally gave away plots of this land to every member. And so every family uh, among the Israelites got an original plot of land. But if they lost it, if they lost it, a kinsman redeemer, if he was willing, had the right to buy back the land without question for that family. So in other words, the person who owned that land had to sell the land for a fair price, for a reasonable price, but they had to sell the land. But they wouldn't just buy the land for this family. You would have to marry the kinsman redeemer. So in this case, Boaz would have to marry Ruth, this woman who is a a widower, an outcast, a foreigner, in a despised race, an enemy race. And so Naomi says to Ruth, you know, he could do this, but why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he sacrifice his reputation? Why would he sacrifice his honor for you? And so in chapter 3, Ruth, in the night, lays by Boaz's feet and then asks him to marry her. Now, if you think about this, in these ancient times, this is absolutely bold, completely atypical of her generation, of her society. Whether you're a modern person or a traditional person, whether you're a modern thinker or you like to consider yourself a modern thinker or a traditional thinker, Ruth doesn't fit into any of those categories. She doesn't fit into any of those categories. On one hand, she's beautiful and womanly. But on the other hand, She's courageous. She's assertive. She's bold. It's an incredible picture of true biblical femininity. But really, it's a picture of biblical humility, biblical character, biblical boldness for anybody. And so Boaz takes up this offer and through a series of acts, legal acts, restores the line of Naomi, marries Ruth, and as a result, Ruth and Naomi get spliced into the line of Judah into the line of David, eventually into the line of Jesus Christ. And I don't care who you are, in 2,500 years, which is really 2,500 years ago, we studied, uh, it was this narrative of the book of Ruth. In 2,500 years, who will study your life? Ruth is this poor, vulnerable, despised, and yet bold and humble woman. And 2,500 years later, we're reading about her and learning about the character of God the character of Jesus Christ and his work. Now, what are the lessons of this? That's the narrative. What are the lessons? First, the absolutely, absolutely life-changing power of friendships, of relationships. It's the most powerful thing on earth. Naomi says, go back to your gods. Ruth says, may the Lord deal with me. She actually calls the Lord as her own. She says, may the Lord deal with me. She's basically saying right now, at this moment, I convert. I want your God. 
I want your God. If you look carefully, verses 8 and 9, which we just read, Naomi's sending her back to her family, sending her back to her gods. But notice, Naomi doesn't say, may your gods bless you. Because she knows, she knows the Lord, she's in the Lord. May your gods be bless you because all, you know, all gods are the same. She doesn't say that. She knows that blessing can only come from God, her personal God, her Lord. That's the word that's being used there. May the Lord bless you. Yahweh, it's a name that was only used for those who had a personal relationship with God, a deeply personal relationship. But what actually converts Ruth? Naomi isn't forceful with her. You know, Naomi isn't, isn't, isn't uh, forcing her hand here. She still cares enough to send Ruth back, knowing that she's going to be empty, knowing that she's going to be destitute. She still cares and loves Ruth enough to send her back so that Ruth can flourish, so that Ruth can experience prosperity. Naomi's empty. Naomi's nothing, she says, but she wants to send her daughters-in-law back. She sacrifices her needs for theirs, and this, in the time of great suffering, gets Ruth. She says, I want your God. I want your God in this. There's something about Naomi's God that is so attractive. She sees Naomi's character so transformed by this God in the midst of suffering and emptiness and destitution. She says that faith is, is credible. That's credible. When Naomi loves Ruth, even though Ruth doesn't believe and even though Naomi's empty, that's when Ruth starts to believe. She says this is attractive. She, thinks, she says, you know, your God teaches you to put my needs ahead of your own needs. And that's amazing. Now, how does that happen? You know, the most transforming facilitator of an encounter with God is the unconditional love of a powerful friendship. Ruth experiences, she's the recipient of sacrificial commitment and love. And it gives her wisdom, it gives her strength. How? to make a, sacrific- a sacrificial commitment of love. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we see is that there are signs of hope in everyone's life, no matter how difficult, no matter how mundane. You never lose hope. Okay, the first sign is the power of friendships, the transforming power of relationships, friendships. But the second thing is that there are signs of hope in anyone's life, even the most difficult and mundane lives. Right now, God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good. You know, if you think about this book, there's nothing about the book of Ruth that's overtly special. There are no dreams, as in the book of Daniel. There are no giant fish that come up and swallow anyone, like in the book of Jonah. There's nobody having this amazing direct contact with God. There's no dramatic answers to prayer. All you see are what? mundane, hard times. There's suffering, and then there's more suffering, and then there's more suffering, and there's homelessness, and there's destitution, and there's this loss, and there's potential violence, and there's grief, and there's uncertainty, and all these things are wrapped up in each other. But God is still at work. That's what we read here. And even if Naomi didn't see it, underneath this veil of suffering, underneath this veil of loss, Underneath this emptiness, God is working, not despite the suffering and humiliation and loss, but through the suffering and humiliation and loss. Naomi comes back. Naomi comes back and she says, you know, I'm empty. But right next to her, she's got this incredible treasure in Ruth, and she doesn't see it. 
It's changing her life and she doesn't see it. You know, what, is, what that tells us is oftentimes we have an agenda. We have an agenda in life and when things aren't going our way, we're blind to what God has put in our lives. We look at all the things we don't have and we complain and we grumble. That's the story of all of the Old Testament, really. There's just absolute complaining and grumbling because of what they don't have. And they don't think about what God has put in their lives. God is doing amazing things in our lives every day, especially in the mundane, especially through the suffering, through the difficult times. Think, if you don't see the blessings right now, is it logical to say, you know, those blessings don't exist? They're not there? If you don't see God working through your life right now, then is it logical to say that that must mean that God doesn't exist or that God doesn't work or isn't active? That's foolish. Most likely it's because you just don't see it because you're blind. It just happened to be that Naomi's husband died. It just happened to be that Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's field. It just happened to be that Boaz is a neighboring relative, a kinsman redeemer of this family. It just happened to be that Boaz is the one person that can save this entire family. It just happened to be that Boaz caught Ruth, saw Ruth, and that Boaz was an ancestor to Christ. Is that all chance? Is any of that chance? Think about your lives. The mundane things that we experience every day. The difficult times that we experience every day. Is it all chance? Is any of it chance? Naomi didn't see it, but what about us? Do we see it? God loves to work in the mundane. You know, how many, how many thrones are there in the world? There are, very, there are few to none. How many fields are there? There are plenty. How many mangers are there? There are plenty. Well, oftentimes we feel like a nobody. God is working through the outcast. God is working through the bankrupt. God is working through the foreigner. God is working through the broken. God is working through the widow in Ruth. So you never say, God abandoned me. You never say, where, where is God? Naomi's crying out, I'm bitter. But there's Ruth, this incredible treasure next to her, and she doesn't see it. Now, if you put that, the first two points together, the incredible power of friendships, the transforming power of friendships, relationships, and the fact that God is working through our suffering, working through the mundane every day in our lives, that he's doing 10,000 things every day for his glory and for our good, what do you see? You put those two things together, what do you see? God is clinging to us, How? How is God clinging to us and working through us? Through our relationships, through just the mundaneness of our lives every day. That's every day. You got to cherish every moment. You got to cherish every conversation. You got to live sacrificially every day. You have to hope for people around you every day. Now, some of us here are saying, well, I know what you're saying here. I know that. But what's really happening is it hasn't, that truth hasn't sunk in. Why? It's because you need a Ruth in your life. You need a Ruth. Naomi says, my God has dealt bitterly with me. I'm devastated. Then Ruth says, in response, well, you know what she says? I want your God to be my God. Naomi says, my life is over. My life is empty. Ruth says, oh, I want your God. I want to follow you. Do you see that? That's an amazing thing. What's going on there? In suffering, in loss, when you're empty, you say you're empty, but you know what? It can only be like that. You know, Ruth is saying, to see you loving, even in the midst of your emptiness, there must be love, there must be a God behind that, and I want that. 
Sometimes you can be a Ruth to other people, and other times you need a Ruth in your lives. But God works through those transformative relationships in our lives, and God is working through your transformative grace in other people's lives, not through the great things that are going on in your friendships, but through the every day. You got to cherish every moment. You got to cherish every moment, savor every joy. The last thing we learn here is this passage shows us the transforming power of God's love. Here's Ruth in the traditional society. She, it's not like she's making a commentary about traditional societies. She's living it. She's inside the society. And in the society, she's a nobody. And yet, through her lifestyle, she subverts traditional society. Naomi's trying to send Ruth away. She's trying to send Ruth back to her family, get married. Why? Because the traditional focus back then was you got to have a family. You got to grow your family. Go back. But what does Ruth do? Ruth chooses to reject her father, reject her mother, reject any possibility of a prospect among her homeland folks at home, completely against the world's values. And she says, I've experienced grace, so my life will stop being led by my blood. It'll be led by grace. You know, it's not like she set out to prove something. You know what? This is an opportunity for me to demonstrate to all of human history what it means to be a biblical feminist, right? It's not like that was her goal in life. That wasn't her goal. She was transformed by the power of relationships in her life through the suffering. And she says, I want that. I want to demonstrate that. And as a result, she becomes a breadwinner in a completely subversive to the society in her day. She becomes the breadwinner. She's the one that labors. She's the one that goes to work. She's the one that sacrifices. She's the one that suffers. This narrative, the younger person becomes the hero. The woman becomes the hero. The foreigner and the outcast become heroes. In fact, the foreigner and the outcast become spliced into the lineage of salvation in a society that says interracial relationships are a no-go. That's an amazing thing that's going on here. Ruth completely subverts society. What is God saying here? God's saying, I don't care about the world's values. And in this narrative, you see in chapter 4, the narrative we just read in chapter 4, they say, you know, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. That's what they say to her. Naomi's finally holding her son, grandson, and they say, Ruth, this treasure is greater to you. Sons. She says, Ruth is better than seven sons. Seven, the perfect number. Seven meaning that that is complete. To have seven sons is to have immense wealth in the family. What, what, what they mean by that is infinite number of sons. And they say, Ruth, this woman, this foreigner, this outcast, this bankrupt woman is, greater, is a greater treasure to you than seven sons, an eternal number of sons. God is choosing to work through the younger, through the poor, through the widow, through the woman, in a society that was patriarchal to the core, through the foreigner. That means you live a big life if you live by grace. You live a big life if you live by grace. Some of us are broken in life. We've been broken, suffering, bitter. You feel like you're empty because you've experienced rejection over and over in your life. You feel like you've experienced loss over and over in your life. You know what God is saying here? He's saying you can be free from that. You can be free. Other people, you know, we have a lot of people here in this congregation who say, well, actually, that's not really me. I'm actually very happy with my life. 
I've done all the right things. I have a great pedigree. I married somebody with a great pedigree. I fit in. I fit in that traditional world. I fit in the postmodern world because I'm doing it. I'm accomplishing things every day. You're racing to complete that pedigree. You're racing to complete everything about family, keeping your home together, getting good homes here together. And yet that's the source of your anxiety and it's going to be a source of emptiness in your life. Because life is way more nuanced than that. Way more complex than that. And your story is not over. And yet God here is saying, you can be free. You can be free of all that too. This is the end of snobbishness. You know why? Because the younger, the foreigner, the widow, the broken one is the one that's exalted. This is the end of snobbishness. This is the end of us comparing ourselves to other people because of what we don't have. This is the end of complaining because everything that we don't have because we're blind to everything that we do have that God has given us. Who is the hero here? I mean, you can't compare yourself to Ruth. You know why? Because in every facet, in every category, you'd win. You would win in every facet and category. You can't compare yourself to Ruth. And yet, she's the hero. She's the hero, which means you can be free. How do you get free? A lot of us will say, I can't do that. I can't. If you think about it, Ruth is in this passage. Ruth is in the Bible. You know, to show us that it's not about what you can do or cannot do. The very reason why we complain, the very reason why we compare ourselves with other people is because we're still trying to do it on our own effort. We're trying to get a sense of worth on our own. And that's why the pedigree is so important. And that's why we compare ourselves, our pedigrees with other people. Whether you have high pedigree or low pedigree, we're doing that. The reason why we're working so hard to make money and to have bigger homes and to have better families, why? It's because you're just comparing. It's yet another thing that we can use to say, I'm worthy, I have worth. Ruth is in the Bible to show you that none of those, God is subverting all those values. God is turning all those values upside down. That's what he's doing. And we see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Because Ruth points to someone who will come after her, to someone who will come out of her. This, if Ruth is coming through, if the grace of God is flowing through, the broken and the weak and the vulnerable, and Ruth is pointing to one who's going to come after her, he will come after her through her brokenness, through humiliation, through rejection. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which is printed in your bulletins in the Word of Encouragement, right? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sakes became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Ruth left her father's house. Ruth left her family. Ruth left everything that could have been. Ruth left her country, and she came down, became an outsider, was pressed down, became a foreigner, risked being beaten and scorned, became a sufferer, became a servant, undignified, unwomanly at times, just to stay alive, unwomanly at times, rejected and despised, and yet she sets the pace for her descendant. Ruth saw an act of sacrifice and love that she couldn't explain, that she couldn't account for, and it changed her. And in the sight of Naomi's love, active love, made Ruth actively love, how much more the sight of he left his father's throne above. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace, 
emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus left the home of his father. Jesus left his family. Jesus left his country. And Jesus Christ came down. And he came to, he came to what? John chapter 1 says, He came to that which was his own, and yet his own did not know him, his own did not recognize him, his own did not receive him. What does that mean? If Ruth came at the risk of violence, Jesus came at the certainty of violence. Jesus became an outsider. Jesus endured poverty. Jesus endured the poverty of our sin, not just worldly poverty, but the poverty of our brokenness and sin. Naomi says, may God deal with me bitterly. God has dealt with me bitterly, and he's devastated me. But really, in reality, God was present. God was active through Ruth. God gave her everything that she needed through Ruth. Jesus Christ on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, my God has dealt with me bitterly. My God has devastated me. My God has forsaken me. He's saying, I am truly destitute. I am truly empty. And he did that for you. He did that for me. He did that for us. When you see Jesus Christ doing that for you, sacrificing everything that he has as an act of grace for you, when you experience the sight of the ultimate Ruth, when you experience the sight of the ultimate Boaz, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, when you witness the sight that he has sacrificed himself for our ultimate redemption, our ultimate redemption, our ultimate glory, when you see that he has become the ultimate Mara so that we would be Naomi, blessed greater than an infinite number of sons, then you can become a Ruth to other people. Then you can sacrifice. Then you can love actively. Then you can hope, even in the most difficult times even in the most devastating times. Those things will not break you because why? When you see Jesus Christ being made complete through his humiliation and sacrifice and brokenness and death, then will we not be made complete through our humiliation and sacrifice and brokenness and death? There is hope in everything. We will not fail to hope. We will form organic, intimate relationships with other people with hope. And we will see the transforming power of the gospel working in our lives so that we, as we see God's active work in us, we will see God's active work in others. And as God and his power transforms us, he will use us to transform and empower others. Will you remember that this week? Let's pray.